It's Sunday, March 6th. I'm Eric Sorensen, and you're listening to The West Block. Well, the Prime Minister arrives in London today ahead of talks tomorrow with British and Dutch Prime Ministers. Western leaders are united in condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Justin Trudeau will also travel to Germany, Poland and Latvia. That's where Canadian troops are leading a NATO mission. Mercedes Stevenson, the host of the West Bloc, is in Latvia. Mercedes, what is the mood there? Eric, the feeling here in Latvia is one of some anxiety and concern. There is definitely a sense of deep sympathy and solidarity with the Ukrainian people. Every night we hear the Ukrainian national anthem being blasted outside of our hotel on large speakers. This is a country that remembers what it was like to be invaded by Russia, by the USSR, and there is concern for Latvia's future. Not that there is an immediate security threat, but certainly that this is a country that could find itself between the crosshairs in the future if Vladimir Putin is trying to reunify what was once the USSR. Mercedes, uh, you sat down with the president of Latvia, Egil Levitz. What did he have to say? Eric, President Levitz is so grateful for Canada's commitment and the 540 Canadian soldiers who are here with about another 150 or 160 who are on their way to shore up that presence. He believes that what we're seeing in Ukraine is a fundamental attack on democracies, on the Western way of life, and that the whole post-Second World War global security order is changing and that the West must recognize that and stand up for what we believe in. Here's my interview with President Levitz now. We're here in Latvia, your, your beautiful and very brave country, but I know there is deep concern about two of your neighbors, Russia and Belarus. When you look at the scenario now, I know you've said you don't feel there's an immediate threat to Latvia. The Russians are not going to roll across the border tomorrow. But what do you feel the medium and long-term threats to your country are from Vladimir Putin? Immediately, we are worrying about Ukraine. And uh, it's the same uh, situation for whole Europe and uh, for all NATO states, because uh, the aggression against Ukraine is, in the same time, aggression against Europe, against uh, NATO, against the Western world, against democracy, and all democracy is, uh, in the world uh, are concerned about that. Uh, concerning Latvia, uh, we have no immediate threat, but of course the environment, the security environment in Europe has changed dramatically. The post-war uh, peace order is not more valid and we should seek for a new order where we should count with an aggressive, aggressive Russia. Do you feel that Ukraine should be brought into NATO, or is it simply too late for that? In the middle term, uh, I would say yes, it is uh, uh, ready to join, but it is not on the agenda uh, now. There has been some hesitancy from some European countries to go as, as hard as possible on the sanctions initially, and it seems like that has changed. You now have Germany, for example, lifting a historic decision not to export arms. Do you feel the West is united in its position against Russia and effective? Yes, absolutely. The West is united. And uh, it was uh, one of the surprises uh, for Putin that the West is so united. Of course, in order to uh, make decisions, it is necessary to have some time, some, some days at least, 
and how some uh, member states of NATO, member states of the European Union, has changed uh, their long-standing politics, for example Germany, it, is, uh, it deserves respect because now they are facing with a reality. The reality is an aggressive Russia and we should deal with this reality, with an aggressive Russia. What is the best way to deal with an aggressive Russia? Is it, is it fighting Russia? Is it creating the NATO no-fly zone that would involve NATO airplanes trying to protect that? How should the West deal with this? Immediately, uh, NATO states are already uh, dealing with that and giving all necessary support for Ukraine in order that Ukraine can uh, defend uh, themselves. Uh, there are military uh, equipment uh, which came from from United States, from United Kingdom, from Germany now, also from Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Poland, from many NATO states. It is uh, immediately necessary for Ukraine. Then, of course, economic and financial support in middle and long term. This is one. Uh, one thing, one direction, support to Ukraine. The other is to impose the heaviest possible sanctions to Russia. You have Canadian troops here, 540 of them. There's more coming, um, artillery, battery, and a few electronic warfare troops. Do you think that that is enough from Canada, or is there more that you plan to ask Prime Minister Trudeau for when, when you meet with him? Yes, it is uh, the Canadian presence is uh, very important for Latvian security, for the security of the whole uh, northern European region. Uh, because uh, the Canadian presence shows that uh, NATO is present and it is a part of NATO's uh, politics of deterrence. It is an anti-war uh, instrument to be present here in order to warn Moscow. Uh, uh, NATO is based on the solidarity of all 30 member states and uh, we are very thankful uh, uh, to Canada uh, that Canada is uh, giving its part to this solidarity. If you could ask the Prime Minister of Canada for, for one other thing, what would it be? I would say the presence of Canadian troops are very, very important. Uh, it is also one, uh, uh, there are uh, other needs to improve the capacity of uh, our Latvian military uh, uh, troops. Uh, I would say this is at the moment, in, the, in these last days, uh, the most important uh, thing. Uh, I uh, would also, um, say that uh, the political unity of, of NATO is very, very important and I uh, see that uh, Canada is uh, contributing uh, to the political uh, unity and uh, to pol political profile of NATO very much. You've stated that you believe Ukraine should be brought into the European Union. Why would you like to see that? I've, I have proposed to give uh, to Ukraine uh, a candidate status uh, 
in a political decision, urgent political decision, now, very soon. It would be a, a political uh, act of the European Union to show the Ukraini Ukrainians that uh, they belong to Europe and uh, that uh, Europe uh, needs Ukraine. Uh, concerning bureaucratic procedures, I know uh, Ukraine is not now formally ready to be a member state, full member state of the European Union. But all the pro bureaucratic procedures uh, should be in this situation put away and uh, we need a political decision. And then, of course, after that we can start with all the bureaucratic procedures uh, uh, in order to, uh, to help uh, the reforms and so on. You also share a border with Belarus. Would you like to see the international community doing more about that country and that, that regime in that country? Politically, uh, Belarus has ceased to exist as an independent country. We should see Belarus uh, politically as a part of Russia. Uh, Belarus, or more precise, regime Lukashenko is participating in the aggression against Ukraine and also all the sanctions uh, are now uh, adapted not only against uh, Russia but also against uh, Belarus. Mr. President, is there anything else you would like to say to Canadians today? Canadians uh, are together with Europe and transatlantic links between Europe and Canada are very, very important for us Europeans and I think also for Canadians. Together uh, we are uh, the basis uh, for the Western value system and we should defend our values. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. President. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. The desire to express comfort to the Baltic countries and resolve against Vladimir Putin will manifest in the form of a number of visits from high-level North American leaders to this part of the world in coming days. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will be visiting Latvia, among other countries, and Secretary of State Blinken from the United States will also be visiting this country and meeting with President Levitz. Eric? Thank you, Mercedes. The U.N. estimates up to 4 million Ukrainians will flee the country as the Russian invasion drags on. Thousands are streaming across the borders with neighboring countries every day. Canada's ambassador to Ukraine, Larissa Galatza, is near the Polish border, where we reached her on Friday to talk about the crisis. Ms. Galatza, first of all, we're seeing this sea of humanity. Describe what it is like like a sea of humanity. Um, it's people standing in lineups, uh, many of them on foot, but a lot of them still in cars uh, coming over the border. Um, I'm glad to say that in the last few days, the the, the lineups, the waits at the border have really come down um, uh, thanks to the hard work of Ukrainian border guards and, and Polish border guards and the entire system on, on this side of the border to, to move them along. But it's, uh, it's people and their possessions. It's mostly women and children and elderly and uh, and and they're, they're looking for safety. 
The, the immigration minister has said there will be no limit on the number of Ukrainians who can come to Canada, at least for, on a temporary basis. How will that work? How many? How soon? Uh, just give us a sense of how this is going to work. I think I know that the details of how that's going to work are being uh, quickly uh, uh, sorted out and, and developed uh, by uh, by Ottawa. Um, but I think what's important is that uh, Ukrainians will have options, um, and they'll have uh, speed, and um, and they'll 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 be able to come to Canada if if they want. Um, Ukrainians also have a lot of options in in Europe. Uh, so uh, I think that Canada is is doing what Ukrainians know Canada is good at opening its doors, saying, come, come for a little bit if you need, come for a longer period if you need, um, and, and we're here to, to help you in your time of need. There, there's a real need for aid and, and weapons, for that matter, inside Ukraine. Are you seeing uh, some of that aid come through Poland, and is it getting into Ukraine where it's needed? Yeah, it is. Uh, let me talk about the uh, the, the military um, equipment first. I was actually at uh, at the airhead yesterday watching that come through, and it is uh, it is a remarkable operation. Nothing sits long there, uh, and uh, and and it's moving through. Um, the humanitarians are now on the ground in, in great numbers, and they're doing that job that they need to do of building that. Big pipeline into into Ukraine, and from there, the logistics that need to happen to get the humanitarian assistance where it needs to be. Unfortunately, for the moment, a lot of the places that need that humanitarian assistance most still aren't accessible to the humanitarian actors. And uh, there's a lot of work underway right now to to create um, the, the safety and security that they need to go in. Russia's uh, foreign minister has made a cold calculation that the West will get over this if uh, Russia indeed does take over and destroy Ukraine. We've seen it before in Georgia and in Crimea. Eventually, life goes on in the rest of the world. Will this be any different? It's not the first miscalculation, I think, that Russia has made. Uh, and the response that we're seeing from our like-minded governments, the response that we're seeing from Ukrainians themselves is unprecedented. Uh, and so I think, uh, I think that might just be another miscalculation. These, these are terrible choices to have to confront as you watch what is happening over there. Um, should Ukrainians be expected? I mean, if NATO and the rest of the world is not going to intervene in a way that will turn around what Russia is doing. Should Ukrainians be expected to just carry on as long as possible, dying in great numbers before this is over? Ukrainians are doing what they need to do for the moment, knowing that all the systems uh, in the world are working to support them, whether it's the delivery of, uh, of more ammunition, uh, whether it's the delivery of the non-lethal military equipment, delivery of humanitarian assistance, the help getting people out, the diplomatic work in Geneva, in New York, in Brussels. It is all working at high gear. Everyone is doing what they need to do. And for the moment, that means that Ukrainians inside Ukraine uh, need to put up the a fight, uh, the fight of their lives. The, um, the, the Ukrainians that are coming across the border and they're meeting with Canadians and seeing what the possibilities are, are they in good spirits? Are they just deeply troubled? Uh, what, uh, describe how they seem to be adapting to what's going on. 
it's the strangest thing to just see everyone's doing what they need to do. Uh, they are moving their children along. They're driving the transport trucks back into Ukraine. Um, and and the the there's a there's a stoicism and this this hardness about, about this determination in in getting that done. Um, and then they have their and then they have their moments uh, of 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 deep grief and, and sadness and and pain. Um, but for the most part, when you see them in these large numbers, everyone's doing what they what they need to do. I think they're being strong for their children. Um, they're being strong for their uh, for their their colleagues in Ukraine, and, um, and 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 taking the next step they know they need to take. Your uh, your four grandparents are Ukrainian, and when you took over this job two years ago, you could not have foreseen the way the job would be happening right now. What what's it like for you? I guess it. Uh, feeling the weight of the unprecedentedness of it all. Um, and that's not just because of my background, but because none of us expected this. And, and I share that with my colleague ambassadors, many of whom are, are here right now. Um, a month ago, two months ago, we were deep in the in in the details of supporting Ukraine on its really fundamental reforms um, that it that that it was making, uh, really historic things that Ukraine was doing. And, and now and now here we are. Um, and we, 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 like those brave Ukrainians, we're doing what we need to do. Ms. Galadza, thank you. Um, keep safe and good luck. Thank you very much. And thanks to all the Canadians for their help. The Conservatives have announced they'll choose their new leader in six months. The field of candidates is just beginning to take shape. So far, high-profile MP Pierre Polyev is campaigning for the job. But he will soon have company. Joining us now to talk more about the candidates and the race is Tory strategist and chair of SUMA Strategies, Tim Powers. Tim, in, uh, in September, the Conservatives will choose their fourth leader in less than seven years. Even as others get into the race, is Pierre Polyev the man to beat? I, I think he set himself up to be the man to beat, certainly with his announcement, Eric. Uh, he wanted to get out of the gates quickly, show that he had lots of uh, people supporting him, get lots of people on side, the so-called Bigfoot strategy. Uh, but will he be the, the Sasquatch that gets seen at the end is to be determined. But right now, yeah, I would say he's in the catbird seat. Uh, but six months in a leader, conservative leadership race with a bigger field, could uh, could uh, change that positioning when we get to the end. Well, for political old-timer, Jean Charest is an intriguing figure. He's already been criticized by the Polyev camp. Uh, he was once the brightest rising star in the Mulroney cabinet 35 years ago. Well, it's 2022. What does he offer now? And uh, disclosure, and 29 years ago when he ran for the PC party leadership, I uh, helped support him when I was working for John Crosby, but I'm agnostic right now. What does he offer now? I think uh, he offers something that Mr. Polyev and potentially other candidates in the to come into this race, like Patrick Brown, like Leslie Lewis, like Scott Akinson, don't, and that's a lot of experience. I think the charade proposition is going to be, look, yes, uh, I haven't been part of this party, but I've uh, I've dealt with tough and difficult issues. I'm a grown up uh, and I am a conservative. He's going to have to defend against criticism that he's not from the Polyev camp uh, around all of that and that I can bring people together. Those I suspect will be his messages juxtaposed with Mr. Polyev, who's already come out and said, you're not a conservative. You you supported the carbon tax. You uh, you supported the long gun registry. 
Eric, if we know anything so far about this leadership race, a pillow fight, it is not going to be a barroom brawl. It will most certainly be. And they seem to be the two shaping up to be on either ends of the bar in that barroom brawl. Uh, but there are other candidates, potentially. Um, Patrick Brown, Leslie Lewis, uh, Michael Chong, Tasha Kiridan. Who and yep. what are you going to be looking for? Well, uh, let's talk quickly about Patrick Brown, the mayor of Brampton, former federal conservative MP. Interestingly, uh, one of the last president or the, the last PC party president, youth president, when Mr. Sheree ran uh, for the PC party. And Tasha Kiridan, by the way, was a PC party president in 1993. Of that group you've just mentioned, Patrick Brown uh, has the most skill and ability in terms of signing up members. He could be a real threat to both Mr. Polyev and Mr. Sheree if he does enter. He won the PC party leadership. Of course, he stepped down after some uh, allegations, some significant allegations were made against him that he denied. Uh, Leslie Lewis has proven that she's a pretty good campaigner, finishing third in the last race. Tasha Kiridan will have supporters across the country. For the Conservatives, Scott Akinson, MP, who, uh, who's looking to make a name for himself, Chong as well, who ran previously. For the Conservatives, having all of those candidates is good for the party brand. That doesn't mean, as I say, there won't be a lot of blood left on the floor. Uh, for Mr. Charest and Mr. Brown, that creates opportunity as it created opportunity for Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole and other conservative leadership races. Because in a ranked ballot, Eric, if you can't be the number one choice in the first ballot, you have to be everybody's second or third choice. I think Pierre Polyev's strategy will be try to be the number one choice where the others will play to be uh, number number two and a bigger field allows you to create more dynamics and more opportunity if you are an underdog. So the others want to be Joe Clark. All right, Tim Powers, thank you. <laughs> now you're really dating yourself, but yes, that's right. All right, uh, thank you, Tim. That's our show for today. I'm Eric Sorensen. Thanks for listening to The West Block.